I can guess what some of you might be thinking. Pastor, why would you inflict this text on us? <laughs> and I don't blame you. On first reading, this text can come off as bewildering or frightening. A woman in heaven giving birth to a child while a dragon prepares to eat him. War in heaven, a flood from the dragon's mouth. The woman soars to safety on eagle's wings. This chapter sounds a lot more like mythology than the gospel. But John, the author of Revelation, is using mythological language here to speak about a deeper reality, both in heaven and on earth. Don't misunderstand me here. The word mythological doesn't mean untrue. It means that John is using a highly symbolic, highly allegorical way to tell deep truths, to tell the deep, to tell the gospel story about the Messiah, about the people from whom he came, his victory over sin, death, and the devil, and the current struggle of the church. And the churches John is writing to are struggling. Some are tempted by the rewards of living according to the dominant Greco-Roman culture, which in Revelation is characterized by market worship and hedonism. Some things perhaps don't change, but stay tuned for next week. Others face external slander and oppression, perhaps from other religious groups or Roman authorities. Still others are torn by internal conflict. The old saw that the church was a perfectly harmonious group where everyone got along and were perfectly nice to each other is not supported anywhere in the New Testament, let alone the Revelation. There were severe challenges, both internal and external, to the church. And our situation, to be sure, is different from the first century church in some respects. Rather than being under threat from the dominant culture, much of the Christian church in the West has been indistinguishable from it for a very long time. For all of John's warnings, the church has gleefully availed itself of state power whenever it gets the chance. However, that's not true everywhere. There are places in the world where the church is still under threat from government authorities, like China, much of the Middle East, India, Pakistan, North Korea, other places as well. And even here in the United States, the church has no shortage of internal dissension and scandal. However, in all the turmoil of the church, both past and present, John gives a vision, or actually the Lord, through John, gives a vision of comfort. The woman is likely the people of God, of every time and every place, primarily God's first love, the people of Israel, but also including the church. From God's people, the Messiah Jesus is born, fully human as we are fully human. When the child is taken up to heaven out of the devil's reach, perhaps a reference to his death and resurrection, war erupts in heaven. That is the moment of the devil's judgment, his expulsion from heaven to earth, and the victory of the church triumphant. However, this isn't a happily ever after scene, at least not yet. 
The woman is left in the created realm. God's people on earth then as now do not fully share yet in Messiah Jesus' victory over the powers of sin, death, and the devil. In fact, Revelation implies that things can be worse for those who are still in their struggle here on earth. That can be hard for us to understand. Why, after all, doesn't God just snap his fingers and fix everything? That actually makes me think of Thanos in the Avengers movies, but let's leave that alone. Why doesn't God give us exactly what people need exactly when they need it? Why can't we enjoy that victory over evil now fully and completely? Well, first of all, thanks to Deb for that children's sermon about what are we thankful for because our daily bread comes to us in ways that we often overlook. Things we just take totally for granted like clean water. But on other things. The answer just seems to be that God doesn't work that way. God is not a magical sky genie who does our bidding. God is not a magical sky genie who does our bidding. God is not subject to our judgment, to our expectations. Quite the opposite. God acts in God's own radical freedom to act. The good news for us is that that radical freedom is bound to God's own determination to be in loving relationship with us, with God's whole creation. God doesn't seem to act by mere fiat. God acts in relationship with God's own, within God's own triune reality as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with all of us, too which means that the rules of engagement with evil have changed. The devil's ground is the opposite of relationship. The devil's ground is violence, murder, deceit, shame, the destruction of any kind of relationship. On the devil's ground, human beings are no better than animals, tools to be controlled and used. You hear this rhetoric today. The enemy is likened to human animals or to vermin, still, you still hear that in the news. But God has fought and won the victory against the devil on God's own ground. Satan is a defeated enemy. He has already been cast out of heaven, but not with weapons of war. We can misunderstand the war imagery. Our enemy, after all, is not an enemy of flesh and blood, as the letter to the Ephesians says. Our enemy, is, God's weapons are the blood of the Lamb. God's weapons are the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of the saints. Did you catch that in the song? These weapons are the tools of shalom, of life, of truth, of restoration to the community of saints, of love, of full humanity, of genuine relationship. These are the tools that bring the devil down. And in God's own perfect wisdom, love, and grace, the church on earth remains for the time being on earth to fight against a defeated enemy. That's what this whole scene in Revelation is about. 
Underneath all the fantastic imagery is the story of the gospel, yet again. The story of the church, the struggle of the church, the victory over sin, death, and the devil. That gives us courage for whatever may come. The devil, as a defeated foe, certainly does rage like a captured animal. You only need to look at the world around us to know that truth. And we still must pray, deliver us from evil. As Luther wrote in the large catechism, there is nothing for us to do on earth but pray without ceasing against this archenemy. For if God did not support us, we would not be safe from him for a single hour. But God does indeed support us. God indeed, in Christ Jesus, fights for us. The floods of chaos may threaten to overwhelm us, and indeed they may overwhelm us sometimes. But we, the feebly struggling saints, still on earth, already know the ending. We will join the church triumphant in the resurrection from dead, they who in glory shine. In the meantime, we are strengthened by the testimony of the saints, the second weapon that's mentioned. Not just about those who have died, but also those of us who are still here. I'm certain that many of you, if we were not in a big, big room with a bunch of people and we were scared of sounding, you know, sound, being exposed, would have a story. Many of you would have a story about the time God's salvation was made real to you. That's why I like Temple Talks so much, even if it makes church go a little longer. Because that's where not only do you not have to just hear from me talking, but hear other stories. That builds up the body of Christ in ways that a sermon can't. It is where the gospel is truly enfleshed for us. The devil's bad story, these stories about our failures, our suspicions, our conspiracy theories, our demonization, those are driven out by the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And I wish we were playing that today. God keep us rooted in these stories, these stories of faith, love, and hope. These stories of Jesus and his victory over the powers of sin, death, and the devil. Thanks be to God. Amen.